Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast. Today's guest is Alex Pang. We had him on the last episode. As you know, he is the author of Rest, which was my favorite book in 2020. And today we're going to spend a bit more time understanding the concept of rest and exploring it more on the idea of the collective self-care concept, so to speak. So, Alex, welcome back to the show, firstly. Hello again. Great to be here. The first question I have for you is I wanted to understand and dissect a little bit something that you left an impression on me in the last episode. You know, you mentioned this idea of trying to separate out working hours and restful hours and, you know, there's no such thing. And, you know, I always say to people that ask me about this work-life balance concept, and I say there is no such thing as work-life balance. There's just life. And, you know, how you spend your hours within that is, you know, choose meaningfully and make sure that you're giving going at the right pace for you. And I think I want to explore that slightly because there were really three topics in rest that struck me and made a massive impression. The first was deep rest. The second was deep work. But the third that I'd never heard of was deep play. I'd love you to tell listeners what is deep work, deep rest, deep play, and how do they all actually match up to create this, you know, whole image of a perfect balanced life? Sure. So, you know, deep work, and I have to credit Cal Newport with, or, you know, writing a whole book about that. But, you know, deep work is that kind of highly focused periods of work where you're able to get into flow, you're able to really focus deeply for an extended period of time on your most important tasks. And not only are we very productive in those periods, I think, you know, my own experience, it feels like I can get more done in two really focused hours than I can in six semi-distracted ones, but they are also deeply satisfying as the psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi argued in his great book, Flow. Those periods where we are completely absorbed in a challenging task are some of the most meaningful and happiest and rewarding times in our lives. So that's one really big reason that it's important to cultivate those periods. You know, of deep rest are periods where we are engaged in active, skilled rest that complements deep work. The big insight there is that rest is not just something that's entirely passive. It's not sitting, you know, with a remote in one hand and a bag of snacks in the other, though that can be, but rather the best, most restorative kinds of rest that we should default to are ones that are active, that are engaged, that are physically or mentally challenging, and that this is a kind of rest that we can learn to get better at. I mean, rest is sort of like breathing in the sense that it's both are completely natural But if you are an opera singer or an athlete or a Buddhist monk, you learn how to use your breath in order to help you project, to run faster, or to meditate more deeply. Likewise, we can learn how to use rest in order to help us be more creative while also refreshing and renewing the kind of creative and mental springs that get drained while we work. And then deep play is this idea that highly ambitious, highly creative people 
are often sustained by lifelong hobbies. This can be rock climbing, it can be painting, or other things that look like they are competitors to work, but which turn out to be valuable for a couple reasons. One is that they remind us of what we love best about this work that we're passionate about, but which sometimes can be kind of frustrating. So they offer the same sorts of rewards, but they do so very quickly at a different time scale and in a different medium. So mountain climbing, for example, scientists and CEOs who do it talk about it being really rewarding, but they talk about it in very different ways. Scientists say it's about problem solving and engaging with nature and taking this big task and breaking it down into a lot of little parts. CEOs will talk about it as an exercise in leadership and challenging people, and there's a whole strategic dimension to it. But the great thing about it is, number one, at the end of the day, either you've made it to the top or you haven't. And number two, you don't have a mountaineering team from IntelliCorp trying to you know, push you down the mountain as you go. So it's all the stuff that's really engaging about your work without the downsides. And people who find that kind of deep play, I think, are people who have higher degrees of emotional resilience. They're people who are more in touch with the things that they love about their work. And they are people who very often, I discover, have much longer creative lives, right? They don't burn out at 30 or 40. So if you love what you do, and you can imagine doing it for a very long time, deep play is one of the things that will help make that possible. And it's interesting because, you know, you, you mentioned Burning Man in the book. This was the thing that I've never really understood and people always challenged me about it, which was when I work so hard during the year, why do I <laughs> want to go and spend two weeks in the desert? One week building a, de a camp, the next week playing in it. How is that? And I come back every single time talking about how energized I am, full of ideas, full of energy, even though I've not slept well, I've not really had good time to rest. I'm dealing with jet lag, all of these things. And I've been in the desert, obviously, and no one can ever understand it, myself included. And when I read your whole chapter on deep rest, I was like, oh my God, it literally makes all of the sense now. I literally understand why that replenishes all my energy levels. It's truly fascinating. It does seem counterintuitive. The first people who really studied these kinds of restorative benefits were people who actually were studying soldiers who were on reserve duty. And they noticed that when they came back from reserve duty, these soldier civilians behaved like they'd been on vacation. They seemed to have the same kind of psychological profile as someone who'd been away for, you know, at the beach for two weeks. And it turns out that it is the change of scene. It is being able to take yourself that completely out of your normal life and your normal world and normal routines that is so deeply restorative, right? It's not just about having a kind of luxurious experience and doing nothing, but these kinds of experiences that really take us out of ourselves turn out to be the ones often that are the most restorative and provide the biggest creative boost. I guess the other side to to this concept of rest, you know, is talking, I guess, about individuality and collectivism, right? So it might be fine for, you know, you mentioned a lot of these creatives or these geniuses, right? And people might hear that and think, well, that's a one man band, Picasso and Salvador Dali, and <laughs> they can do what they want with their time. But I've got a maniac of a boss who won't be very, I mean, it might be slightly different now. Everyone's working remotely and on Zoom, might be able to sneak in the odd Zoom. Sorry, the, oh, the odd nap. You can definitely sneak in the odd Zoom, sadly. <laughs> I guess the question I have for you is, why is there this 
inherent cultural attitude of, I guess, guilt for taking breaks in the day still. Um, you know, what do you think we can do to sort of rise the collective sense of acceptance around this is a better way to work because it's more profitable, it creates more value to the company, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. It used to be the case even 20 or 30 years ago that people were more serious about taking lunch breaks or that, you know, in some companies there there still was a little downtime in the afternoon where everyone could actually, you know, rest up and take a nap. The long secular trend has been for break time to be break times, officially sanctioned ones particularly, to be claimed back by capital in the interests of constructing a workday that consists of a long, unbroken period of unceasing toil, right? The idea to bring into the office the kind of system that existed in, you know, the assembly line minus shutting down for lunch or doing other kinds of things. This has been reinforced by a culture that has taught us that the way in which we demonstrate our professionalism, our, the way that we invest in ourselves, and, you know, honestly, the way that we pull ahead from our peers or prevent ourselves from being made redundant is by being constantly present at the office and by showing our bosses just how dedicated we are by putting in long hours. And so when we deal with this issue, we have to recognize that there are cultural and economic and normative and kind of professional and, and identity issues that are all pushing us toward working ever longer hours. The big lesson that I've learned in the last couple of years that the companies who've gone to four-day weeks have taught me is that we make a mistake when we think of these issues of work-life balance and sort of juggling parenting and career and so on as entirely individual ones as ones that happen just between me and my family or between, you know, my eyes and brain and the screen. There is an important social dimension to them as well, that, you know, my ability to focus at work, my ability to get stuff done, depends on my boss's ability to respect my time, to recognize that there are certain times of day when we are all more productive on hard tasks, and to not hold meetings at those times. They depend on other people's ability to not ask that one quick question that turns into a 10-minute conversation that requires 20 minutes to get back into flow. So recognizing that there is an important social component to these problems, we can get a lot of benefit by solving them all together, solving them collectively. And the four, things like the four-day week offer a really elegant collective solution to problems of work-life balance and burnout and career sustainability that allow us to work together with our colleagues to solve these problems, to solve them for everyone, to solve them equally, rather than forcing us to cobble together and improvise our own solutions, to build our own infrastructures and networks, and sometimes to do that without the perception that we're doing this at the expense of our colleagues or costing something to our employers. So I think that this kind of collective action is really a powerful way. It's a powerful form of self-care. It's a powerful way to solve problems that we are taught to think of as entirely individual ones. Okay. What would you say, from your perspective and your experience, are your top three tips for brain care from everything that you've learned? The first thing I would recommend is get enough sleep. Every study I have seen 
every life I have looked at tells me that if you do nothing else, that if you want to have a healthy brain that's healthy for a long time, get enough sleep. This is going to pay off not just tomorrow, it's going to pay off 50 years from now. The second thing that I would recommend is that the brain is somewhat like any muscle in that, you know, trainers now tell us that we don't build muscle while we're working out, we build muscle while we're sleeping. You need the workout in order to stimulate all the stuff that ultimately grows muscle and, you know, and improves coordination. But you also need those rest periods for the body to do its thing, to learn the lessons, to kind of bulk up. Likewise, I think that the brain absolutely needs stimulus and periods of intensive use in order to stay healthy. However, those also need to be balanced with periods of serious rest. The other thing on a daily basis that I am coming to see as more important is paying attention to food and diet. Particularly as I get older, I find that my energy level is really sensitive to, and my attention levels, to what I eat during the day. And I am thinking a lot more about what I have for lunch and when and, and how much I eat to maintain a daily level. But I think probably over the long run, we will see if that has some kind of effect on sort of longer term brain health. We tend to discount or not think or pay a lot of attention to the value of, let's say, a more protein and vegetable rich, less carb rich diet on brain performance or mental acuity during the day, but I am recognizing now that that actually is something that is well worth more attention. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. Did you know Height started as a newsletter that I've written every week for years? I'm still doing it, and I'd love it to reach your inbox too. So, for weekly science-backed emails on the best ways to take care of your most important organ all in under three minutes, sign up at yourheights.com forward slash Sundays. See you next week. Music